0: Hello and welcome to Urban Ambling. Makata here. For this episode, we'll keep on exploring the statues, the wonderful statues on the Lands Department in Bridge Street. And the one in particular today will be found just near the corner of Loftus and Bent Streets in Sydney. And it's in fact on the Bent Street facade. The statue is that of Alan Cunningham. And we see from the few matters I'll sketch for you today, this same theme we've seen before of people leading quite extraordinary lives in a very short span. Cunningham's first 19 or 20 years weren't particularly notable. He was born in Wimbledon, a name and suburb of London known to us all, on the 13th of July, 1791. His father was also an Allen who happened to be the head gardener at the Wimbledon Park House. He was a Scotsman from Renfrew Shire in Scotland and he'd married an English lady, Sarah. Now, Wimbledon Park House was in fact the manor house for the estates in that area. The houses themselves have changed over the years with the ebb and flow of history at that time and quite a few of them had been built and burnt down and rebuilt but that doesn't particularly concern us. The interesting thing is that of the original manor land, some 42 acres of land came into the hands of the organisation by the wonderful name of the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club. And that, of course, is the club that to this day runs the Wimbledon Championships. I was interested when I made a few inquiries to see that it has very few members. The actual full members number about 360, and then there are various other associate members, including people who've won the Wimbledon Championship, which brings it up to a bit over 500 members. And it's also of more than passing interest to note that some of the surrounding lands which the wonderful lawn tennis and croquet club of all England occupies were landscaped by that very distinguished English landscape architect, Capability Brown. The Wimbledon club didn't exist at the time our Alan Cunningham was born, and indeed it wasn't founded until, until the 23rd of July 1868. And at the time it was originally founded, it was just a croquet club because apparently at that time In the 1860, croquet was all the rage. And just as a little bit of trivia to be useful for saving up for trivia nights, tennis was introduced to the British Isles in about 1875 by a gentleman called Major Walter Clopton Wingfield. Great name for a prominent person, and he was both a Welsh inventor and also a... British Army officer. Now, there's also another little interesting aside that the first person to win the first Wimbledon championship was a chap called Spencer Gore. And as often happens to people, they give opinions which prove in the fullness of time to be horribly wrong. And he, at the time of his victory, opined as follows, lawn tennis will never rank among our great games. Willie Shaw got that wrong, and it reminded me somewhat of the chap who was the head of IBM, I think, in the 19 late 1940s when the first computers were being developed. Uh, he expressed the view that the world would probably not need more than about 20 computers. So uh, our mate Spencer Gore was in distinguished company. So Cunningham does have that very interesting incidental aspect to his history, having grown up in the lands that were to become the great Wimbledon Tennis Centre. He was educated at a private school in Putney in London, which was run by a chap called the Reverend John Adams, and it was called the Reverend John Adams Academy. He then decided to chance his hand in the law and went to work in a solicitor's office for a Lincoln's Inn conveyancer. Perhaps uh, he saw the light, and he decided that plants were probably more for him, and he obtained a position with the then superintendent of the Kew Gardens. And being there, it brought him in touch with, among others, uh, the great Sir Joseph Banks, who, of course, had such a significant association with Australia. So, as I say, apart from the fact that he happened to come into this world near Wimbledon, there was nothing particularly dramatic about that. But what is striking and stunning... Is what he packed in to the next twenty-eight years. Now his first real job from the Kew Gardens was one that all of us would only dream of at that age, and he was sent off by Sir Joseph Banks to Brazil to collect specimens. I think any twenty-year-old person heading off to Brazil heading off to Brazil would be sort of full of uh, much anticipation. In any event, he spent about two years, mainly in the jungles, which sadly were much more extensive then than they are now, and he collected a very large number of plants. Sir so Joseph then, after a couple of years, suggested that it might be wise for him to go on to Sydney and in fact gave him a letter of introduction to the then governor, Lachlan Macquarie, advising that he was appointed as an official collector for Kew Gardens. And accordingly, young Alan Cunningham sailed from, would have been Rio, I suppose, Rio de Janeiro, on the 28th of September 1816. And that journey took him till the 20th of December 1816. He presented himself to Lochner Macquarie, and as was that gentleman's wont, he was warmly received. Macquarie suggested that he might like to go on. An expedition that the great Charles Sturt was shortly to lead over the Blue Mountains on the path that had recently been discovered by Blackall Lawson and Wentworth, and to explore the the region of the Lachlan River through to the marshes where it joins with the Murrumbidgee. Cunningham, of course, jumped at this, but while he was waiting for the expedition to start, he took some a house at Parramatta and did a lot of collecting in the the region round there. Now. It's, it's interesting that at the time he arrived in December 1816, that was the same year that Solomon Wiseman had settled at what was called in those days Lower Portland Head, but which we know as Wiseman's Ferry. That's something I mentioned because shortly I'm just going to read a passage that Alan Cunningham contributed to the Geographical Journal in 1832, somewhat bemoaning the Lack of exploration in the years since the settlement of Sydney Cove had begun. The European settlement of Sydney Cove had begun because certainly there were attempts to the north, and as I say, Solomon Wiseman had made it that far. And not long after the surveys began for the building of the Great North Road through the fairly rugged country to the Hunter Valley. Now the comment that Cunningham made—it's a very long article, which I'm not going to burden you with, but. In this contribution to the geographical journal, as I said, he sort of lamented a bit the lack of exploration over what had been by that stage 22 years, which is probably being a bit harsh, given that for most of those years they were desperately just trying to keep themselves alive. But what he said in part was this, to that fine settlement in whose internal prosperity and advancement I have during my long residence among its inhabitants, ever f- felt a lively interest, I shall consider myself as having rendered no small service. What may appear in the following pages shall induce this society, which was the would have been the Royal Society, to promote by such means as it may have at its command, the more extensive examination of the interior of New South Wales. We possess colonies on its eastern and western shores which are daily exciting more and more interest in this country. And should the tide of immigration continue to flow, as it has done for some years past, new land must be thrown up to meet the wants of the settlement. Up to that period, and he's talking up to a point in 1819, the colonists knew nothing of the southern country. And can I just interpolate that that was a bit surprising because the physical impediments, the geographical barriers to exploration by Europeans to the south was much less than what it of course was to the west or the north. He says going on, the colonists knew nothing of the southern country beyond the cow pastures where that extensive patch of thicket called the quite Bargo brush formed a boundary which had not been penetrated. At length, about this time, both that and the wombat brush in Argyle, and that was a county, the county which is around the area of Goulburn, were passed and a third river flowing inland and called by the Aborigines Morrumbidgee with an O, morumbiji was discovered. Minor excursions were immediately afterwards made by individuals into that interesting country where many fine tracts of land were found, which have since proved of great value to the grazier, although uh, I interpolate not to the Aborigines. It was not, however, until the winter of 1823 that an extensive tract of undulated country, clear of timber and watered by the Murrumbidgee, was discovered by a party conducted by a naval officer at a point nearer to its source than had before been seen. This open country, which was named upon its discovery, and I interpolate European discovery, quote, Brisbane Downs, the travellers learnt from a tribe of the natives that in the Aboriginal language it was called Munaro and its extent was described by the Aborigines as very considerable. So that was just an interesting observation about the settlement of the south and also giving us the names of the rivers, the origin, the Aboriginal origin of the names. Now, what he achieved, what he did, is too long to go through in detail, but just let me quickly sketch some of the things that he packs in. So he arrived, as we, he said, in December 1816. On the 4th of April 1817, he left Parramatta as a member of Oxley's expedition party to the Lachlan River. That lasted until the 29th of August 1817, when he returned to Bathurst. He could have only been back in Sydney about 11 days when Governor Macquarie indicated that he wished him to travel with Captain Philip Parker King on a survey of the northwest coast of Australia in the cutter Mermaid M E R M A I D now let me say that the mermaid was something like only about 90 tons and here they are going on a voyage of exploration round Australia having very little idea of what conditions they would face and it in fact managed to do it about four times before it just became totally unseaworthy so that expedition commenced on late December of 1817, and that occupied over six months, with him not returning till the 29th of July 1818. But not being a man to sit around, he, on the 19th of October 1818, set off to visit the Illawarra, an area that he was to explore on quite a number of occasions in which he had a great interest. In fact, the electorate of Cunningham, which is down in the Illawarra, commemorates his involvement with the uh, Illawarra. Well, that was October 1818, but you know, you don't want to sit round, do you? And Incidentally, might I say that there's no mention of Cunningham ever having had a partnership, a marriage, no mention of any children, which I must say, given his amazing activity in these journeys is perhaps not all surprising, but there you go. So that was October eighteen eighteen, as I said, but on Christmas Day of all days, so you don't even have a day off, he left on the Mermaid on a journey this time to Tasmania. They arrived in the infant Hobart town in the second of january eighteen nineteen, and of course he was out collecting specimens because what's clear about Cunningham is that he was above all else a botanist. And really one gets the sense that the all the expeditions weren't so much driven by the desire to find what was there, but more to see what plant specimens he could obtain. So, having had the trip to Tasmania, which you know most of us would regard as well, that's a nice holiday for the year. Not our Mr. Cunningham. On the eighth of May, he set off on another journey in the Mermaid to once again survey the northwest coast of Australia. Now, the first few times, I think they went to the west, round through the Bight and up, getting up to the top of the Northern Territory, that area, particularly the area between the Bathurst and Melville Islands and Arnhem Land. That's where they sort of came to going either way. And on other occasions, they went up the East Coast. And on this trip, they went as far as going across to Timor and they were there on the 1st of November, 1819. 12th of January, 1820, they were back again from Northern Australia But, of course, never to uh, sit still, they had one attempt to leave for the north again on the 14th of June, but they struck a gale and had to return to Port Jackson, but left again on the 13th of July on the third expedition to the north. He was off again for the fourth survey expedition, again with Philip Parker King, leaving on the 26th of May, 1821, to the north. And they were gone then for 11 months, returning on the 25th of April, 1822. Now, after all that, you'd feel like just sitting down and having a rest and vegging, as we would say. But I know, by August, he's off again and does a short trip, his second trip to Illawarra. And in December of that year, 1822, he began exploring the country northwest of Bathurst. There then flies on visits again to the Illawarra, visits to Bathurst. He makes an expedition to Appen. And on the 22nd of March 1824, he headed south through cow pastures and down to the Goulburn district. There then followed some more Illawarra trips. But then by 1825, he began the exploration from the Hunter Valley or from Bathurst initially and later from the Hunter Valley up across the Liverpool Range to the great Liverpool Plains. And it was really those expeditions and the one we'll come to in a moment further north that are the ones for which he's best remembered. By August 1826, uh, he was off to New Zealand on a vessel called the Indian, but was only away until the early part of 1827. It was in February 1827 that he set off to explore an inland route from Bathurst or the Upper Hunter through to... What we'd call Queensland, but was then known as the settlement at Morton Bay, and this was the expedition where he was the European discoverer of the very great agriculture district of the Darling Downs. Now, he, on that journey, he didn't find a way because Toowoomba, which is the main city of the Darling Downs, the eastern edge, sits right on the top of the Great Dividing Range, and I must say the views uh, as you drive along that part of the range are just stunning. But on that expedition, he didn't have the time, the capacity, the, the patience of his people travelling with him. He couldn't find the way down to the coast, which he was eager to do. But in 1828, he went by ship up to the Moreton Bay settlement and moved from there to discover what is now named in his honour as, as Cunningham's Gap. Now, the road to Toowoomba's now been vastly improved to freeway, uh, standard, uh, which is good in one respect and not in another, you lose the sense of the past. And I, I must say, I don't precisely know whether it's exactly through the past, but it's probably pretty close. Now in 1830, in May 1830, he left Sydney for Norfolk Island and also a smaller island, which I hadn't heard of before, Phillip Island, which is nearby. And he was there from May to September of 1830. Now, in 1831, he decided to go back to England, take all his specimens to England to catalogue it all and to write it up. And he left Sydney on board a vessel called the Fourth and returned to Kew Gardens. And he remained there for some five years. And of course, in that period that he contributed that article to the Journal of Discovery, which I read that small part from, but it's a very comprehensive account of his journeys. But like a lot of these things from that time, they're written in the most excruciating detail. He then decided to return and he'd left England in October 1836 on a vessel called the Norfolk. And he'd been given a job as the superintendent of the Botanic Gardens. And he was in fact taking over from his brother, who for a period had had the same job. So 1837, and can I just say here, he's packed all of that into those 21 years. Now, he got to Sydney on the 1st of March 1837 and took up his duties as the superintendent of the Botanical Gardens, but he immediately found that he just didn't like it one little bit because what he discovered was that basically the gardens, instead of being a place dedicated to the scientific study of plants and the nurturing of plants substantially seemed to just operate as a kitchen garden for the wealthy and government elite of the colony and he wasn't going to have a bar of this, so he quit. He said, that's it. And I think it was Governor Gibbs in those days tried to persuade him to stay, but Cunningham was in high dudgeon and he said to the governor he'd stay, but his fee would be £450 or something like that a year, which, which was just off the planet. And the governor said, well, look, there's no way we can afford that. So he quit in April after only two months and he went back to New Zealand to carry out further expeditions and plant gathering. But sadly, by this time, his health was deteriorating and he reached a point that he decided to return to Sydney. And he did so on the 13th of October, but he was a a very sick man. Happily, he was accorded both dignity and mercy by the government and he was given a small house to live in in the gardens, even though he'd stormed off in high dudgeon, they gave him a house which was good and proper. And that's where he died on the 27th of June, 1839. So as I said, that's a very brief and a very incomplete account of what this man did in the space of the 28 years from the time he left Rio to the time he died in the gardens which given current methods of travel, it'd be astonishing, but in the means of travel then available, it's just, it's just striking. And he's, his death was caused by what in those days was called consumption, which we know as tuberculosis. But as I said in the heading, uh, he scored a statue, which was no mean honour in the lands department, putting him into a place of public exposure in a wonderful setting, but his followers and the people who admired him were still very active, for in 1844, an obelisk was erected to his memory in the Botanical Gardens. Now, it's still there. It can be found just a little to the east of the where the kiosk and the restaurant is, and it's in a little pond, and you can't miss it, really, if you're looking there. And it's got a plaque which will tell you you're in the right spot. And it's just interesting to also say that some of the trees which still exist around there are from or related to specimens which Cunningham brought back to the gardens. Now, that wasn't the end of it, because when he died, he was buried in the what was then called the Devonshire Street Cemetery. Now, that was, in fact, on the land where the Grand Central Station, the, the big wonderful sandstone building, that, in my day we used to call it the steam platform, but I suppose it's the country and uh, regional platform now where that was constructed, so a lot of people had to be moved. So even at the time that occurred, Cunningham's admirers were such that they located his remains such as they were in his grave, which interestingly was brick line. There were still some fragments of bone, some of identifiable, some not. And these were collected and encased in a suitable container. And a hole was cut into this obelisk in the upper part above the plinth in the base of the actual top of the obelisk. A hole was cut and that container was secured in there and a marble plaque is over the top. And that is there and still visible paying memory and tribute to Cunningham. So that really is quite extraordinary and an extraordinary compliment and tribute to any person that you are still remembered all those years, 60 or so years after you've died. And people take a sufficient interest to go to the trouble of putting what remains of your body into such a notable memorial. So that's it. Once again, an interesting sketch of a very interesting person. Stay well, stay happy. And I do hope you have time to do a little of that. Until next time. Cheerio.